Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're finishing up volume three today, going through chapters 111 through 124. These are 14 chapters that we're going to be studying as part of our class today, where we'll be reading the chapter, I'll be sharing some teachings on that, and then I'll open up to any questions that might exist, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put that into the comments section, and if you are in Zoom, you have the added ability to raise your hand electronically and ask any questions that you like. Considering we have 14 chapters to study today, I'm not going to do meditation as I typically do so that we can use our time to actually study the teachings of the Buddha using the Pali Canon in English. So I'm going to be displaying these on the screen to be able to help you guys see the actual teachings of the Buddha, the words of the Buddha, starting with chapter 111. And I'll go ahead and read these chapters to help you guys as we go through. And then if you have any questions, again, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions. So welcome to all of you guys. This first chapter, chapter 111, is titled The Noble Eightfold Path, The Way of Practice Leading to the Elimination of Discontentedness. In what monks is the noble truth of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness? It is just this noble eightfold path, namely right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. In what monks is right view? It is monks, the wisdom of discontentedness, the wisdom of the cause of discontentedness, the wisdom of the elimination of discontentedness, and the wisdom of the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. This is called right view. And what, monks, is right intention? The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of harmlessness. This, monks, is called right intention. In what, monks, is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. In what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. In what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. In what monks is right effort? Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, 
makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. In what monks is right mindfulness? Here monks, a monk residing reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. And what monks is right concentration? Here, a monk, distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy, and with the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy, and with the fading away of excitement, remaining imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited, calm, serene, mindful and clearly aware. He experiences in himself the joy of which the noble ones say, peaceful is he who resides with equanimity and mindfulness. He enters the third jhana. And having given up pleasure and pain, and with the fading away of former gladness and sadness, he enters and resides in the fourth jhana, which is beyond pleasure and pain, and purified by equanimity and mindfulness. This is called right concentration. And that, monks, is called the way of practice leading to the elimination of discontentedness. So here we have the Eightfold Path. This is the core central teaching of the Buddha. This is the path to enlightenment. In order for somebody to get to enlightenment, they would need to understand this inside and out, backwards and forwards in a lot of detail and ensuring that not only do you understand this core central teaching, but you understand the other teachings that connect into it. Things like the five factors of well-spoken speech and other teachings on mindfulness and concentration and things like this. There is a whole litany of teachings that plug into this Eightfold Path, but this is the core central teaching that one would need to understand in order to progress to enlightenment. And I teach this in other classes and other programs where you can learn this thoroughly inside and out. I do that in the group learning program online. I do that here in Chiang Mai in classes and courses and retreats. So 
usually students who are learning in the polycanon and English study group have already studied the AFO path in one of these other programs or courses or retreats. So what I typically do is open up to any questions that you guys have on the specific aspects of the AFO path in the polycanon and English study group, because the students here are typically refining their practice of the AFO path, but they've already done the deep dive in other classes, courses, or retreats. So I'm gonna to check to see if there's any questions here on the AFL path that you guys are welcome to ask. And as I mentioned, you can put those into the Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section. I'll be able to see that there and you'll be able to ask any questions that you like related to the AFL path. And by the way, if you haven't yet studied the AFL path in detail, I would direct you to the first volume of the book series that I share, which is titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, and the videos and other resources that I share that have the AFL path. And of course, you're always welcome to join any of the online or in-person courses and retreats that I teach because that's where I do the real deep dive on the AFL path. So I'm not seeing any questions about the Eightfold Path. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is titled, Where Earth, Water, Fire, and Wind Find No Footing. And I'm not gonna be able to pronounce the names here, so I'm just going to insert the best substitute for not only the names, but the type of heavenly realms that the Buddha is talking about here in this particular discourse. But if you're reading along with me, you'll be able to see what the actual words are. So here it says, once Kavada, in this order of monks, the thought occurred to a certain monk. I wonder where the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element, are eliminated without remainder. And that monk attained to such a state of mental concentration that the way to the heavenly realm appeared before him. And that monk attained to such a state of mental concentration that the way to the heavenly realm appeared before him. He went to the heavenly realm of the four great kings and asked the question. When none of them could answer the question, the monk went to the 32 gods who said, we don't know, but Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, may know. Saka told the monk to ask the Yama heavenly beings, the Suyama, the Tasuta heavenly beings, the Santusata, Minnarati, Sunamati, Paraminmati, Mata, Vasata heavenly beings, Vasata, I think that's how to say that, I'm not exactly sure. Brahma's associates and all the way to the great Brahma. The great Brahma avoided to answer and finally said that the heavenly beings believe there is nothing Brahma does not know, but the truth is he does not know where the four great elements cease without remainder. It is the monks fault that they did not ask the perfectly enlightened one. In the end, the monk went back to the perfectly enlightened one. So that monk, as swiftly as a strong man might flex or unflex his arm, vanished from the Brahmin world and appeared in my presence. He prostrated himself before me, then sat down to one side and said, Venerable Sir, 
Where are the four great elements? The earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element eliminated without remainder. I replied, Monk, once upon a time sea-traveling merchants, when they set sail on the ocean, took in their ship a land-sighting bird. When they could not see the land themselves, they released this bird. The bird flew to the east, to the south, to the west, to the north. It flew to the zenith overhead and to the intermediate points of the compass. If it saw land anywhere, it flew there. But if it saw no land, it returned to the ship. In the same way, monk, you have been as far as the Brahma world, searching for an answer to your question and not finding it, and now you have come back to me. But monk, you should not ask your question in this way. Where are the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the fire element, and the wind element, eliminated without remainder? Instead, this is how the question should have been put. Where do earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul? Where are name and form wholly destroyed? And the answer is, where consciousness is quieted, immeasurable, all radiant, that's where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, there, name and form are wholly destroyed. With the elimination of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Okay, there's a lot going on in this discourse, so let me explain this to you. First of all, this earth, water, fire, and wind, this is how they described the physical body during the lifetime of the Buddha. Nowadays, we talk about bones and sinews and organs, and we talk about molecules and atoms and cells and all these different things. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, they didn't have the complex scientific understanding of the human body the way that we do now. So they described it through this traditional method of earth, water, fire, and wind. And even today, if you come to places like Thailand and study traditional Thai medicine, they still use earth, water, fire, and wind to describe the human body. And they even describe disease through earth, water, fire, and wind. So the earth element is the solids of the body, like the fingernails, the teeth, the hair, things like this. The water element are the fluids of the body. This is like the saliva, the tears, the pus, the urine, the blood, all the liquids of the body or the fluids. The fire is the heat or the temperature, oftentimes associated with digestion because it takes a certain amount of heat in order to produce digestion. And then the wind element is the movement. So where the blood is the water element, the movement of the blood is because of the wind element or the movement of food through your intestines and digestion moving through the intestines and ultimately excreting it as feces, this is because of the wind element. So the body was described as earth, water, fire, and wind, and we could look at through traditional medicine and during the lifetime of the Buddha that there were certain malfunctions or problems with the body and it would be described through a problem with the earth element or a increase of the fire element or a lack of wind in the body or something like this. So that's why the Buddha is talking about earth, water, fire, and wind here because what they're ultimately getting to that this monk has a question about is where 
and how do we get to a point where this body no longer exists and that we don't keep creating birth over and over and over again? Where is it that this physical body does not come into existence again? So here the title is where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. The way that you can think of that is where does this physical body not come into existence? That's what is being described here in this particular teaching. And the monk has gone to all these different places to find an answer. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, they had certain cosmology that the Buddha broke down heaven into multiple different sections and categories of heaven. And he did the same thing with hell as well. Today, we think about the five realms as hell, animal, afflicted spirits, human realm, and heavenly realm. But during the lifetime of the Buddha, they categorized hell in many different types of hells. And they did the same thing with the heavenly realm as well. And you don't need to understand that cosmology that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha in order to get to enlightenment today. But just understand whenever you see him describing all the different heavenly beings and all the different hells, that's because of the cosmology that existed, the thinking that existed during that lifetime. Today, we've simplified it and we just call it hell and heaven along with the animal realm, the afflicted spirits and the human realm. And the goal of this path to enlightenment is not to get to heaven. It's to train the mind, eliminate craving, anger and ignorance, purify the mind, get to enlightenment so that there is no longer any rebirth. So that's why this question is being asked is, how do we get to a point where we no longer keep being reborn? Because if we keep being reborn, we keep experiencing grief, misery, displeasure and despair over and over and over again. So the Buddha eventually gets to it here towards the end of this, where he says the question should be, where do earth, water, fire and wind find no footing? Right. That's the question that should be asked or where are name and form wholly destroyed? Well, name and form is what he describes in dependent origination. When you look at dependent origination, which is the highest ultimate truth of the Buddha, he describes 12 interlinking and interdependent steps that describe why the mind experiences discontentedness and why it continues to experience rebirth. And he explains it in 12 interlinking steps. These interlinking steps are dependent on each other and one leads to the other and this is how we originate. And when he gets to talking about the physical body, he refers to it as name and form. But then he describes name and form in more detail, independent origination, as the four elements and as the five aggregates minus one and actually adding in contact, which when we get to dependent origination, we'll be talking about name and form. But essentially what this question from the monk is getting to is where do we get to a point and how do we get to a point where we don't keep being reborn over and over? And that's what the Buddha describes here in the answer to his question. He says, where consciousness is quieted, immeasurable, all radiant, that's where earth, water, fire, and wind find no footing. So that's where you get to a point where you aren't reborn over and over and over again is when consciousness is quieted, when the mind is quieted. Consciousness is the mind. So when you eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, these three unwholesome roots or these three fires, these three poisons from the mind, when you purify the mind and eliminate that, the mind is quieted or the consciousness is quieted. It's stilled. It becomes immeasurable. You can't even measure the peace and the joy that is experienced in the enlightened mind. It's all radiant. 
right? So that's what the Buddha is explaining here. That's where the physical body or name and form are wholly destroyed. When the mind is purified of the pollutants, the 10 fetters, we talk about them generally as craving, anger, and ignorance, but in more detail, they're described as the 10 fetters. When the mind is purified of those 10 fetters, then it's enlightened, it's quieted, it's immeasurable, it's all radiant, it's bright, it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And that's where the physical body no longer is going to exist. Once you attain enlightenment, you will live the rest of this life with the peace and joy and then at the time of death, there's no longer any birth in the cycle of rebirth. The Buddha didn't describe what happens once someone attains enlightenment and dies. He left this as an undeclared teaching. But he didn't say that there's no existence. Oftentimes you'll hear people say that once someone attains enlightenment and dies, that they don't exist anymore. Well, they don't exist in the cycle of rebirth. That's what the Buddha actually shared, that you don't exist in the cycle of rebirth. But whether there is existence or isn't existence, once someone attains enlightenment and dies, the Buddha left this as an undeclared teaching. So here he's saying the way to eliminate all of this is to eliminate the consciousness, that when you purify the consciousness, that it's no longer going to continue in the cycle of rebirth, picking up a new body, picking up more earth, water, fire, and wind, or picking up these physical structures of name and form. So that's what he's describing here. And we'll see if you guys have any questions on this particular chapter. You guys know how to ask questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see those here. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So we will just continue to move on in our class to the next chapter, which is chapter 113. And this entire part here is just one paragraph in a sentence. This is actually the last part of the chapter we just studied. So here, it's just a repeat of the previous chapter. So there's no need to actually go through and read this and then actually teach it because I just taught it to you in its long form. But here, it's segmented out so that you can just grasp what it is that the Buddha was teaching, which is when you quiet consciousness, that's what eliminates rebirth and the cycle of rebirth. So let's move on to chapter 114, which is titled The Condition. I'm gonna read chapter 114 and 115 because these two are actually connected and I can teach them to you both at the same time. Here, 114 is titled The Conditioned. Monks, there are these three characteristics that define the conditioned. What three? An arising is seen, a vanishing is seen, and its alteration while it persists is seen. These are the three characteristics that define the conditioned. 115. The unconditioned. Monks, there are these three characteristics that define the unconditioned. What three? No arising is seen, no vanishing is seen, and no alteration while it persists is seen. These are the three characteristics that define the unconditioned. So what the Buddha is doing here is he's describing conditioned objects and he's describing unconditioned objects. If you've studied the universal truth of impermanence, then you should understand these fairly well. But this is the Buddha's words around those. And he teaches them in other discourses as well. But here he gets right to the heart of the matter, that he's describing what a conditioned object is. It arises, 
it changes and it fades away. That's what a conditioned object is, that it's conditioned, that it will arise, change, and fade away. If you look around the world around you, you can see that all the material objects around you are conditioned objects. Because remember, you shouldn't believe any of the teachings of the Buddha. You can independently verify them. So you can look around and see this electronic device that you're listening to this on. It's a conditioned object. It arose it changes and it fades away. So at one time, this electronic device was other bits and pieces and parts, and it was put together and assembled into a certain object. So it arose as a computer, or it arose as a phone, or a tablet, or something like that. And then over time, it changes. It gets scratches on the screen, the coloring fades, the software slows down, you need to update the software, it's a little bit dirty, then you clean it, it's continuously changing. And then it's fading away, it will fade away. Eventually, this computer, phone, or tablet, or whatever electronic device you're using, you're not going to have this device, it will fade away, it will no longer exist, because it's a conditioned object. And all the things around you, whether it's your clothes, your hair, your physical body, your bank account, your car, your bicycle, your house, your food, all of these things are conditioned objects, as well as the feelings that you experience that are discontentedness. Those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. They are conditioned feelings that the happiness arises, it changes, and it fades away. The same thing with excitement and thrill, exhilaration and euphoria. It arises, it changes, and it fades away. Those painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, those are conditioned feelings. The sadness arises, it changes, and it fades away. These are conditioned feelings. And those neither painful nor pleasant feelings, like discomfort or displeasure, if you were sitting really close to somebody on public transportation and your mind felt displeasure during that experience, that displeasure arises, it changes, and it fades away because it's based on a condition. Pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, they're based on some condition. So therefore, as that feeling arises in the mind, it changes and it fades away. And this is why your happiness, as long as it's conditioned happiness, is not permanent because it's based on some impermanent condition. As long as you base your inner feelings on the condition of it being sunny outside, that condition of being sunny, it arose, it changes, and it fades away. So that means your happiness is also gonna arise, change, and fade away. So your mind's gonna move to sadness or anger, frustration when it rains outside. Or if you got happy because your bank balance was a certain amount, that means your feeling of happiness arose and then it's going to change and it's going to fade away as your bank balance changes. Your relationships, your shoes, your job, your job title, your children, the physical body itself. The physical body arises, it changes, and it fades away. So if you base your inner feeling of happiness on you look so youthful, when you get a wrinkle on your skin, that condition has changed. You don't look youthful anymore or your hair turns gray. So now, because you based your happiness on the condition that of you look youthful and you're craving that to be permanent, that feeling of happiness is not permanent.
So this is what a conditioned object is and what conditioned feelings are. This is what is experienced in the unenlightened mind is these conditioned feelings because it's craving, longing, and yearning for things to be permanent, but yet all these things around you are impermanent. Now let's understand the unconditioned. What unconditioned is, is that it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. There are unconditioned objects in the world. Enlightenment itself is unconditioned, and the natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught are unconditioned as well. So let's use the natural laws of existence. These are the same natural laws that have existed from the lifetime of the Buddha until now. And they're the same natural laws that existed before the Buddha. And they're the same natural laws that exist after the Buddha. The understanding of these natural laws has changed because they're conditioned. As soon as people wrote the teachings down into books, those books are conditioned objects. They arose, they changed, and they faded away. Well, we still have some of those books around, of course, but some of the teachings have been lost. This is why it's important to learn from a teacher. So those teachings that the Buddha shared, while the natural laws themselves are unconditioned, they don't arise, they don't change, they don't fade away, this is why what he taught during his lifetime is timeless. It applies during his lifetime and it applies now. But because they were written down and people's memories change, the books change, those are conditioned objects, then people's understanding of those teachings have changed. But now what I'm doing is bringing these teachings back into the world so that people can understand them more readily. But the same teachings that he shared are the same things that led to enlightenment during his lifetime are the same things that lead to enlightenment during this lifetime. So the natural laws themselves are unconditioned. They don't arise, change, or fade away. And this is why what he taught in going back to his original teachings is what will produce enlightenment. But as long as things are changed, his teachings are changed, then it's not describing what he actually taught as these unconditioned, timeless, natural laws of existence. And as you learn and practice and you train your mind based on those teachings, then the mind moves to this enlightened mental state where you've uprooted the conditions in the mind that are causing it discontent feelings. Namely, you've eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance. You've eliminated those 10 fetters. Those are the conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up and trapped and hindered and staying in the unenlightened state. And as long as those conditions are in the mind, you're going to continue to experience conditioned feelings. But what you're doing on this path to enlightenment, among other things, is you're training the mind and purifying the mind, removing the conditions, those 10 fetters. And when you remove those conditions and you've purified the mind, now the mind is unconditioned. And when you get to an unconditioned mind where you don't have craving, anger, and ignorance, and you don't have the 10 fetters, now your mind is unconditioned. Therefore, when you experience the mental qualities of peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy, those mental qualities, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away because they're unconditioned. They exist because you've eliminated the conditions that are causing the mind to go up and down with pleasure and pain. So when you purify the mind of those conditions that are causing the mind to go up and down with pleasure and pain, you've now unconditioned the mind and you'll experience unconditioned peacefulness, 
calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy. We might even call it unconditioned happiness, that in the unenlightened mind, there are certain conditions. This has to happen, and 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 then I will be happy, right? That's what conditional happiness is, and that conditional happiness arises, changes, and fades away. But by the time you purify your mind of the conditions and you get to an unconditioned mind, now you wake up. The mind is already happy. The mind is already joyful. The mind is already peaceful. All day long, the mind is happy. It's already peaceful. And then when you go to sleep, the mind is already peaceful. It's already joyful. It's already happy because there's no conditions in the mind that are causing it to be shaken up. So you can get to this unconditioned mind by uprooting the conditions of the 10 fetters, which are conditioning the mind, and therefore it's gonna continue to experience discontentedness over and over and over again, where the mind goes up and down and up and down and up and down. But the enlightened mind is beyond this pleasure and pain because it's now unconditioned. So enlightenment itself is an unconditioned object and the natural laws of existence are unconditioned. They don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. So the mental qualities of enlightenment, they don't arise, change, or fade away. They just exist in the mind because there's no conditions that are shaking it up. The natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught, they just exist. They don't arise, change, or fade away. They just exist. And now, by you learning more and more about what those natural laws are, you can gain wisdom and now make wise decisions and experience this liberation of mind, getting to a purified mind that is unconditioned, and now you'll experience the peacefulness, the calmness, the serenity, and the contentedness with joy. So let me know what questions you guys have on this by putting that either into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or in Zoom, you can raise your hand electronically. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on any of our platforms. So I will move on to the next chapter, which is 116. This is titled, Seeing Non-Self with Correct Wisdom. Monks, form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations or choices, decisions are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is discontentedness. What is discontentedness is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This, I am not. This is not myself. When one sees this as it really is with correct wisdom, one holds no more views concerning the past. When one holds no more views concerning the past, one holds no more views concerning the future. When one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving. When one has no more stubborn craving, the mind becomes free from strong feelings towards form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness, and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. By being liberated, the mind is steady. By being steady, the mind is content. By being content, one is not agitated, by being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana or enlightenment. One understands, destroyed is birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of existence. Okay, so let me help you guys understand this. 
This is related to the universal truth of non-self, but the Buddha is actually going through all three universal truths here. He's talking about the universal truth of impermanence, the universal truth of discontentedness, and the universal truth of non-self, and he's tying them together and helping you see how these lead to liberation of mind and getting to this enlightened mental state. And of course, you would need more than just the three universal truths, but he's breaking this down for you and connecting them together. So the first thing that he's talking about here are called the five aggregates. This is form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and consciousness. These are called the five aggregates, or five elements, or five collections. These are the five elements, or the five things, that help you understand what a living being is. When you understand the five aggregates, then you understand what a living being is. So a living being is going to have physical form. You know you're a living being, so you can independently verify this for yourself, that there's this physical form, there's this physical body, that there's feelings. That's those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant. There's perceptions. What perceptions are, are the views and opinions that you have about the world. It's the way that the world seems to be. It's not necessarily true, but it's just your views and opinions of the world. Then there's volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. And then there's the consciousness, which is the mind itself. So these are the five things that determine that there's a living being. It's going to have physical form. It's going to have feeling, perceptions, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions. And then there's a consciousness. So you can see for yourself, you have all five aggregates. And that's why you're a living being. You can also see that a bird, a dog, a monkey, a snake, a lizard, a whale, all of these things have all five aggregates, and that's why they're a living being. But you can also see that this device that you're listening to this on, or maybe the couch or the chair that you're sitting on, or if you're sitting on the floor, you can see that these things don't have all five aggregates. They have physical form, right? This computer that I'm using to live stream and connect with you guys, it has physical form but it doesn't have feelings, it doesn't have perceptions, it doesn't have volitional formations, and it doesn't have a consciousness. So therefore, it's not a living being. So the Buddha is describing here that this physical form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness are impermanent. And then you need to independently verify that, that yes, this living being has all five of these aggregates or these five elements, these five collections, and that is what determines what a living being is. And you can look around the world and see that every living being is going to have these five aggregates. And you can see that it's impermanent, that it arises, it changes, and it fades away. Okay. Then the next thing he's talking about here is what is impermanent is discontentedness. Because if you've studied the Four Noble Truths, you understand that what the unenlightened mind is doing is it's craving permanence. It's wanting things to be permanent, but yet it lives in this impermanent world. So what is impermanent is discontentedness because as long as the mind's craving permanence, when it's in an impermanent world, it's going to keep experiencing discontentedness over and over again. What is discontentedness is non-self. So what the Buddha is saying here is that discontentedness that you experience, whether they're conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant, these are not you. This is not who you are. So when you get angry, if you think about it as I am angry, 
This is not a proper way to think about it. What you should think about is the mind is angry. The mind is frustrated. The mind is sad. The mind is frustrated or the mind is happy. The mind is excited. The mind is having displeasure. The mind is experiencing grief. So if you understand that what is discontentedness is not the self, then you can start separating the body, the mind from these feelings of discontentedness. And rather than absorb those and think that I am angry, then you can separate from that and just realize the mind is angry because it has these conditions of craving, anger, and ignorance in there, namely the 10 fetters. And that's what is producing this discontentedness. But this discontentedness is not you. It's not who you are. What is non-self should be seen as it really is with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. So going back to the form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness, what the Buddha is saying is this is not you. This is not who you are. But the problem that the unenlightened mind is going to have is it's going to cling to the physical form and it's going to think that this is you. It's going to maybe cling to the feelings that come into the mind and think that this is you. You're going to cling to these perceptions, your views and opinions of the way you look at the world and think that this is you. It's going to cling to these volitional formations, your choices and decisions, thinking that this is you and this is who you are as a person. And now the consciousness itself clinging to that. And what the Buddha is sharing with you is this is not who you are. Because as long as you keep clinging to these five aggregates, not only are you going to experience discontentedness, but you're going to continue to experience rebirth. So you need to realize that this physical form isn't you. And let's even focus in on the volitional formations a bit. Sometimes you might make a decision now that is going to be implemented three weeks from now or three months from now. And let's just say you've made a decision to travel to Canada or travel to Australia. And now you've made that decision and three months from now you're planning to go to Australia. Well, as time gets closer and it gets closer and it gets closer, if you're clinging to that decision and you look to book your plane tickets and there were some things that came up over the course of those months and weeks, and you don't have the money any longer to book that plane ticket to Canada or to Australia. If you continue to cling to that decision of I want to go to Australia and this is who I am, I want to go here, then as long as your mind is clinging to a choice and decision, you're going to be very discontent when you can't afford to go to Australia or Canada. Or the other thing you might do is you take out debt and then you charge up a credit card or something like this and it causes challenges that now you have to work and put pressure on yourself because of that clinging to the decision rather than just let go and realize, you know what, it's just not the right time for me to go to Canada or Australia. I can let this go. But as long as the mind's clinging, maybe you think you're going to look bad to your family or your friends if you don't go to Australia because you've already told everybody you're going. And now you feel like you would look bad if you didn't go. So it motivates decisions to do things like take out loans or use costly credit cards in order to book that plane ticket. So the Buddha is helping you to see that none of these things are you. And then what this allows you to do is when you see non-self with correct wisdom, you hold on to no more views concerning the past. So all those past decisions that you made in your life, 
no matter what you were doing. Maybe you were a bully on the playground when you were growing up as a child. Maybe you had sexual misconduct at different times. Maybe you used substances that cause heedlessness at different times. If you continue to cling to that and think that that's who you are as a person, you're going to continue to experience the pain from those experiences that you're viewing those things as who you are. But you can let go, realizing that, no, those were just choices and decisions that you made in the past. You chose to be a bully, but now you're wiser and you're choosing to no longer do that. You might have chose to have sexual misconduct in the past, but now you're choosing to no longer do that because you have more wisdom. Or maybe you chose to use substances that cause heedlessness in the past, but now you're choosing to no longer do that because that's not you. That's not who you are. And you can let go of the past and you hold no more views concerning the past. And you don't define that as who you are in the present moment. And then the Buddha says, when one holds no more views concerning the past, meaning you've trained your mind to let go of the past, one holds no more views concerning the future. That if you've made certain decisions about the future and your mind is longing and yearning for that, it's going to cause discontentedness. But if you can let go of the past, realizing that that's not who you are, then you can let go of the future. And instead of putting pressure on yourself and putting these significant expectations on yourself to be a certain way and do certain things in the future, you can let that go and bring the mind into the present moment and realize that you just need to make decisions in the present moment. Because when you hold certain views about the future, that my bank account should be this, that I should have this job title, I should have this degree, I should have accomplished this by now. I should have had a husband or wife by now. I should have had kids by now. I should have had a house by now. I should have had a car by now. When you lay all of that on your shoulders, it burdens you. And then you have this craving where you're chasing after these things, where you're putting expectation after expectation after expectation. Because if you expect your bank account to have $1,000 and you only have $500, you are going to be discontent. And now you chase and chase and chase and chase and chase and you get to $1,000 in your bank account. But what does the mind do when it has craving? It longs and yearns and it sets the expectation that now you should have 3,000. And now because you only have 1,000, you're unhappy. And so now you chase and chase and chase and chase and chase and chase and chase. And now you get to 3,000. And you might be happy for a couple of weeks or a couple of months. But now you're not happy with that anymore. And you set your goal to be 5,000. And now you chase and chase and chase and chase. Oh, there's a dip. You had a repair to your car and now you feel miserable because your bank account is only $2,000 again, right? This is what the mind's doing when you think about the future and you predetermine in your mind that certain things should happen in the future. And now your mind longs and craves for those things to occur. And you can't be content in the present moment because the grass is always greener on the other side. The mind always wants what it doesn't have. It wants something that it doesn't have. It's chasing. So you can let go of these views concerning the past and concerning the future. And when you do, this is when the Buddha says, when one holds no more views concerning the future, one has no more stubborn craving because you're not longing yearning. You've let go of the past. You've let go of the future. And you're just residing in the present moment being content and peaceful and joyful in the present moment based on what you have. And now you pursue things as a goal, as an objective, as an interest. You set a goal for yourself that you would like to improve 
your bank account, you would like to have more of a balance, but you understand that that's a work in progress. Or you would like to maybe get more training or more degrees, or you would like to advance in your career, but that's a work in progress. It's not going to happen on a set timeline. Or you would maybe like to have a life partner, or maybe you would like to have children someday, but that all happens as it happens. You need to gradually work towards that. But if you're craving it and you don't have it, your mind's going to be discontent. So here the Buddha says, when one has no more stubborn craving, when you've eliminated craving, the mind becomes free of strong feelings, right? It doesn't have these strong feelings towards form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. You're no longer holding on to these five aggregates, wanting them to be permanent. And now, because of that, the mind is liberated from the taints. The taints are those fetters, those ten fetters, those pollutions. Those are what we call the taints, or some people refer to it as the defilements. These 10 things are what's hindering the mind and keeping it stuck in the unenlightened state. So when you get liberated from the taints by non-clinging, now your mind is free. It's gotten to enlightenment. And that's what the Buddha starts describing now. Because when you eliminate the 10 fetters, the mind is liberated. The mind is steady, right? The mind is steady, the mind is content. Being content, the mind is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana, enlightenment. This is what enlightenment is, that there's no more agitation. The mind is unagitated. And then having done that, one understands birth is destroyed, right? Because if you attain enlightenment, you will know that it's been one year, two years, three years. Your mind is peaceful. It's steady. It's content. It's unagitated. And you will know that you've eliminated the conditions that are causing discontentedness in this life because you see the peacefulness and joy in the mind and you know that there won't be any more rebirth because the holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. You've done the training. You've done the learning. You've gained the wisdom. Now, there is no more for this state of existence. You're not going to keep coming back, repeating it over and over and over and over again. That's what the Buddha is describing here. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter, seeing non-self with correct wisdom. Let's see. We have a question coming in on YouTube. It says, does concussions come from meditation? What I understand about a concussion, which is a medical thing, is it's where the brain is essentially hits up against the skull and it's bruised, I think is what it, it happens. And then the brain is concussed, right? It, it has a concussion. It has this impact with the skull and now it's being affected by that. So it doesn't come from meditation. It comes from trauma to the skull. That's where a concussion comes from. Let's see if there's any questions in Facebook. Let's see, I'm not seeing any questions in Facebook. And there are no more in YouTube as well. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 117. This one is titled, No Desire for the Nutriment, One Attains Enlightenment. If, monks, there is no desire for the nutriment, edible food, or for the nutriment contact, or for the nutriment of volitional formations, choices and decisions, or for the nutriment of consciousness, if there is no excitement, if there is no craving, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no development of name and form. 
Where there is no development of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations or choices and decisions. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say that is without sorrow, anguish, and despair. Suppose, monks, there was a house, a hall with a peaked roof, with windows on the northern, southern, and eastern sides. When the sun rises and a beam of light enters through a window, where would it become established? On the western wall, venerable sir. If there were no western wall, where would it become established? On the earth, venerable sir. If there were no earth, where would it become established? On the water, venerable sir. If there were no water, where would it become established? It would not become established anywhere, venerable sir. So too, monks, if there is no desire for the nutriment edible food, for the nutriment contact, for the nutriment volitional formations or choices and decisions, for the nutriment consciousness, consciousness does not become established there and come to growth. Where consciousness does not become established and come to growth, there is no development of name and form. Where there is no development of name and form, there is no growth of volitional formations. Where there is no growth of volitional formations, there is no production of future renewed existence. Where there is no production of future renewed existence, there is no future birth, aging, and death. Where there is no future birth, aging, and death, I say that is without sorrow, grief, and despair. So once again, what we're getting here is a chapter where the Buddha is describing what leads to the elimination of continuous existence in the cycle of rebirth. And he's talking about extinguishing the things that support the continued rebirth. And he's talking about nutriment of edible food, the nutriment of contact, the nutriment of volitional formations, and the nutriment of consciousness. These are four things that as long as the mind is craving and yearning and longing and wanting these things, then the mind's going to continue to exist. So he's saying if there is no desire for continued craving, this continued support, then this consciousness is not going to continue to exist. So it's not going to pick up a new body, which is the name and form. And he gives this analogy here about a sun coming into a building. And he's saying, okay, if there's no wall, if there's no earth, if there's no water, where does that sun end up? And eventually what his students get to is it doesn't get established anywhere because there's no place for the rays of the sun to become established. So if there is no consciousness, if there's no support for the consciousness, if there's no craving, desire, attachment that's continuing to burn in the mind, if there's no fire in the consciousness, then it won't pick up a new name and form, a new physical body. So that's what he's ultimately getting to here. Because remember, I shared with you what name and form was in the previous chapter. So as long as there's these fires burning in the consciousness, craving anger and ignorance, then there's going to be continued existence because in the mind, there's going to be this continuous fire that's burning and wanting to hold on to this world. As long as the mind is clinging and holding on to the world, either 
the edible food, wanting contact, certain choices and decisions, or the consciousness itself, then it's going to continue to experience birth and picking up a name and form because the consciousness hasn't been extinguished. So you need to get to the point where there isn't this craving, desire, attachment, this longing and yearning burning in the mind for these things. And then when you extinguish the craving, then there's no more fire. There's no more spark that can light the next fire. So if you think about craving as the fuel in the mind, and as long as this fire has fuel, it's going to send off sparks and it's going to light a new fire. But when you extinguish the craving, the craving is the fuel. So when you extinguish the craving, it doesn't send off any new sparks. So there can't be a new life or a new existence when you don't have any fuel in the mind. And that craving desire attachment is the fuel that's burning. All right, so let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter, if anything at all. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here in any of our platforms. So I will move on to the next chapter, which is 118. How should the nutriment edible food be seen? And how, monks, should the nutriment edible food be seen? Suppose a couple, husband and wife, had taken limited provisions and were traveling through a desert. They have with them their only son, dear and beloved. Then, in the middle of the desert, their limited provisions would be used up and exhausted while the rest of the desert remains to be crossed. The husband and wife would think, our limited provisions have been used up and exhausted, while the rest of this desert remains to be crossed. Let us kill our only son, dear and beloved, and prepare dried and spiced meat. By eating our son's flesh, we can cross the rest of this desert. Let not all three of us perish. Then, monks, the husband and wife would kill their only son, dear and beloved, prepare dry and toasted meat, and by eating their son's flesh, they would cross the rest of the desert. While they were eating their son's flesh, they would beat their breast and cry, Where are you, our only son? Where are you, our only son? What do you think, monks? Would they eat that food for amusement or for enjoyment or for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness? No, venerable sir. Wouldn't they eat that food only for the sake of crossing the desert? Yes, venerable sir. It is in such a way, monks, that I say the nutriment edible food should be seen. When the nutriment edible food is fully understood, craving for the five chords of central pleasure is fully understood. When craving for the five chords of central pleasure is fully understood, there is no fetter bound by which a noble disciple might come back again to this world. Okay, so this is a pretty graphic story. I think that we would all agree with that. But this is oftentimes the way a Buddha might speak is they speak in extremes to be able to help illustrate a point. Because if you just talk about a soft little story about, yeah, we shouldn't be attached to chocolate chip cookies, right? We shouldn't crave popcorn and just eat it up and eat it up and eat it up. There needs to be this story, this graphic story to really illustrate a point and arise it in the mind and help you really gain the understanding of what he's sharing here. So what he's talking about is food, because this is one of the strongest cravings that some of us might have, that if you have longing and yearning for food, 
then you're going to still have craving and it's going to be very challenging for you to get to enlightenment because there are certain foods that you like because of the craving and there are certain foods that you dislike. But what you would like to get to ultimately to get to enlightenment is where you've eliminated craving in the mind and you can just eat all food and you just see food as something to nourish the body. That is is its only purpose. That oftentimes we eat food because we're trying to please the tongue and please the mind. That's what is actually occurring when there's craving desire attachment is you might only pick certain foods and eat those foods because you're trying to please the tongue and please the mind because of certain cravings. And then when you taste foods that you don't like and you don't care for, now the mind is repulsed by that and it pushes that away. And it might even have certain painful feelings like agitation or frustration, right? But what you would like to get to, which is what the Buddha is using this story for, is to get to the point where you just see food as something to nourish the body. And the way that you do that is you can have other people choose your food for you where you're not making a certain choice to only pick things that you like or dislike. So when you go to a restaurant, you might ask a server, you know, what food do you like here? And they say, oh, this is my favorite. Okay, I'll have that. Even if it's something you would never eat, train your mind to eat it or have a partner or a child or somebody else pick your food. Or nowadays, there's a lot of places that have meal plans that you can just purchase like a six week meal plan and they just show up with meals every two or three days and they deliver meals and this is just what is in front of you and you just eat it and you just train your mind to eat whatever is in front of you. That's what you would ultimately like to get to is where you're not just picking and choosing certain foods and only eating what you like and leaving behind what you don't like is that you would like to get to the point where nothing that the mind could potentially see is repulsive and you could be able to eat everything and anything. The other aspect of food that you need to train is you need to train to eat in moderation. Oftentimes what we do is we eat gobs and gobs and gobs of food. We eat in excess. The Buddha teaches to eat food just enough that it removes the hunger pain from the body. That if you continue to eat and gorge yourself, this is going to put a lot of work on the body and thus the mind. So you would like to eat in moderation where maybe you're eating smaller portions. This is much better for the body where you're not just gorging yourself. And the other aspect of eating is that you're not interested in emotional eating. That if you're sad, you eat. Or if you're frustrated, you eat. This is oftentimes what the mind does. And when you experience those painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, and others, the mind that is untrained is going to have craving and it's going to long for pleasant feelings. And it's going to try to get some pleasant feelings through craving, desiring, attaching, and having some type of food. So if you indulge in chocolate or cookies like excessively, right? Like if you notice that when you're sad, you turn to a big thing of ice cream and you start eating ice cream or something like this, this is what the mind's going to tend to do. So you would like to get to the point where you just see all food as being needed to sustain the body and you can eat any food and all food that you eat in moderation and that you don't emotional eat. So in the teachings of the Buddha, you'll see that he taught the monks to only eat once a day. And that's for a specific reason that ordained practitioners will oftentimes eat just once a day. But that's not required in order to get to enlightenment. But it is required that you don't view food as being pleasurable and that you're able to eat all foods. You'll need that in order to get to enlightenment. You'll need to get to the point where you're not eating emotionally 
and you'll need to get to the point where you're eating in moderation. And if you can do those three things, that's what will help you with the food and ensuring that you're eliminating any craving desire attachment through the tongue related to particular foods. You could eat once a day if you'd like. That helps you to take away the emotional eating part. But oftentimes in the household life, we have certain activities that we're involved in that our caloric needs are much higher than just a roaming aesthetic. Like a monk who's mostly at a temple, who's walking around, who's meditating and doing very few physically active things, they can get away with eating just once a day. But oftentimes in the household life, we need to eat more than that. And a lot of the monks nowadays even eat twice a day because some people say that the caloric value of food is a lot lower nowadays than it was during the lifetime of the Buddha. So like a broccoli during the lifetime of the Buddha, some people say that the calories that were in that were much higher than a broccoli that we eat today because of our pollution of the soil and water and our environment, that the broccoli doesn't produce as much calories. So this is also one of the reasons why some people think that perhaps one meal a day was possible during the lifetime of the Buddha. And there are people nowadays who do eat just one meal a day, ordained practitioners and household practitioners too. So you could try that if you like. But if you aren't interested in that or if you're finding that the demands that your body has are higher than that, then you can still get to enlightenment using the things that I'm sharing, which is train the mind to be able to eat any and all food where you see that the mind is repulsed by something, train the mind to eat that and be content while it's eating that. Eat in moderation, so smaller portions, and ensure that you're not eating through emotion, that when the mind is experiencing certain feelings, you're just eating based on the feelings that you're having. So let's see if you guys have any questions on this. Let's see, we have a question on YouTube. How about food craving? What kind of exercise need to do? Is eliminate desire answer for craving? Okay, so I just kind of talked about food craving, right? So I think you've gotten what you need there. I think you probably asked this question before I went through the full talk. So you understand about craving food. And what kind of exercise do you need to do? If you would like to do exercise, that's your decision. The Buddha doesn't talk about exercise, although you can see from his teachings and his lifestyle that he walked extensively, that he walked everywhere he went, essentially. You know, I'm sure he rode in a vehicle here or there, but he did a lot of walking. So if you choose to work out in the gym or you choose to walk or ride bicycles, you can do all these things. You're just not looking to do them in excess. You'd like to bring it to the middle. And also you're not looking to never get exercise either, where if you just sat around on the sofa and ate all day, you would become grossly overweight and you would have all kinds of health problems because you're just sitting in one spot eating all the time. You're not getting any physical activity whatsoever. So you can exercise, but just be sure you're not craving, desiring, attached to it so that then if you don't exercise, you're grumpy or your ego might kick in and you might think that because you exercise and others don't, that you're better than them right? So you would like to maintain your equanimity, your calmness and composure, even if you don't get your exercise in, that's not an excuse to be grumpy or irritable and don't allow the ego to come in and look down on people just because they don't exercise. And then your third question here is, is eliminating desire answer for craving? So the way that I describe craving is I describe it as craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, holding, grasping, longing, and yearning. This is all the same thing. So 
a desire is a longing and yearning. This is where the mind's wanting or craving something. So the answer or the way to eliminate craving, desire, attachment generally is breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity. These are the two generalized trainings. But there's other training as well that I talked about recently in the group learning program as part of chapter 13 in volume one. So if you haven't learned that, it's important to go back to volume one, chapter 13 and read the book, as well as see the class that I taught on that particular topic. All right, so let's see. Here's a question, or maybe it's a comment. Jacqueline saying, how should the nutriment edible food be seen? It's a strange analogy. It is a very graphic analogy, but the Buddha is using it as a way to help you understand that when you eat food, just view it as something to nourish the body, right? And the Buddha will sometimes talk in extremes in order to illustrate a point, and that's what kind of gets your attention, right? It's really gotten your attention. And this image of three people traveling through the desert, a mother and a father and their son, and killing their son and eating his meat. And then by the time they get to the other side of the desert, you know, they're complaining and crying and and miserable that they've eaten their son. But while they're eating that meat, they're just going to be looking at it as something to nourish the body, right? So this story will really stick with you. That's what a Buddha is doing who's teaching through the oral tradition. Remember, nothing was written down during his lifetime. So he was trying to teach in a way that would penetrate into your mind and give you an image and a representation of something that you could retain and you could remember for long periods of time because he didn't write anything down during his lifetime. So a story like this would really penetrate into the mind and really stick with you. So think about this while you're eating. Perhaps you might think about this, that this meat... If you're eating meat still, or if you're eating even broccoli or oranges or apples or bananas, think about this in this way, in this story, and just look at it as something to nourish the body. And that's it. It's not to please the mind and please the tongue. All right. So let's move on to the next chapter, which is 119. This one is titled The End of Stress. There being no yearning, there is no coming or going. There being no coming and going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here nor a there, nor a between the two. This, just this, is the end of stress. So when he's talking about the end of stress here, he's using another word besides discontentedness because stress is part of discontentedness. But if he was just to use the same old words over and over and over and over again, his students would probably get bored because they're unenlightened, right? Their mind's going to get bored of that. So you're looking as a teacher as a way to stimulate thought and stimulate contemplation and reflection so that your students will look inside and start to understand these teachings and start to really uh, spend time thinking about them. So he's using a different word here to refer to discontentedness, and he's talking about stress, a particular type of discontentedness. And he's saying that there being no yearning, so that's that craving, desire, attachment, the longing, the yearning, that there is no coming and going. What he's talking about here is that when you have craving, desire, attachment, you're not going to be content in the present moment. You're not going to be content where you're at. You're going to always want to be coming and going. You're going to want to be somewhere else that you're not. You're at home and you're bored at home, so you want to go to the park. And then you go to the park and you're bored at the park, so you want to go to a restaurant. You go to the restaurant, that's satisfying for 
period of time, but then you're bored at the restaurant and you want to go home again, right? This is the coming and going. Or you live in one state or one country or one province, and now you want to go somewhere else and go somewhere else and go somewhere else. The mind's always chasing after the next thing. The grass is always greener on the other side. So the Buddha is saying, there being no craving, desire, attachment, there's no coming and going. The mind can be content wherever you're at. It can be peaceful wherever you're at. It can be calm wherever you're at. There being no coming and going, there's no passing away and arising. This is the universal truth of impermanence, that if you're not coming and going, coming and going, there's no passing away and arising of conditioned feelings. That if you don't have craving, desire, attachment, there's not going to be the arising of conditioned feelings, the changing and fading away, because you've eliminated craving, desire, attachment. There's no more coming and going, so therefore there's no longer any conditioned feelings that are passing away and arising. There being no passing away and arising, there is neither a here nor a there, nor a between the two. What he's saying is that there's no longer any rebirth, that you're no longer going to be reborn. There's no longer going to be existence in the cycle of rebirth. This, just this, is the end of stress, right? So he's using some different words to explain the same things that he teaches in other discourses, but he's approaching it from a different angle, helping you to see it from these different angles. Any questions on this chapter? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions on this chapter. So let's go to the next one, which is chapter 120. See, that was 119, so we'll go to 120. This is titled, The Mind Has Attained to the End of Craving. Through the round of many births, I roamed without reward, without rest, seeking the house builder. Painful is birth again and again. House builder, you're seen. You will not build a house again. All your rafters are broken. The ridge pole is dismantled. Immersed in dismantling, the mind has attained to the end of craving. Okay, so this is a teaching from the Dhammapada, which is a part of the Pali Canon, but it was written probably a good thousand to 1200 years after the death of the Buddha by scholars who were kind of summarizing the teachings of the Buddha. In the Dhammapada, which you'll find is more poetic type of teachings where the Buddha spoke in normal words, but when they summarize the teachings in the Dhammapada, they sometimes used and oftentimes use kind of more poetic type things. And that's what's being described here is through the rounds of many rebirth, I roamed, right? So the Buddha is describing how he roamed and wandered through the cycle of rebirth. And if you ever view your past lives, you'll know this to be true, that you've had countless past lives. And as you were roaming and wandering through all those past lives, there was no reward, right? You just keep being reborn over and over and over again throughout all these five realms. And it was without rest, right? You're just constantly chasing, 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 chasing. It's exhausting, to chase after craving. It's a burden. And doing that through countless lifetimes, it's without reward and without rest. Seeking the house builder. The house builder is the mind that's going to now take up another existence and take up a new physical form. So seeking the house builder. Painful is birth again and again and again because when babies are born into the world, the mom's not laughing. The mom's not feeling pleasure as the baby is either coming out of the birthing canal or coming out of the stomach. This isn't how uh, we experience birth. It's painful for the mother. 
And it's also painful for the child too. And then now that the child comes into the world, it's quite painful to experience all the changes that are happening in the body. This is why we come out of our mom's stomach crying because we already have craving when we're in the stomach. And now we're in this womb, we're feeling all this wonderful warmth and life is just so grand because mom is eating and it's feeding us through the umbilical cord. Life couldn't be better. We're just hanging out in the stomach, in the womb, and getting all of our needs met. We're just hanging out in the womb. But now all of a sudden labor kicks in and we experience this huge amount of impermanence where now we're being pushed out into the world or surgery is bringing us into the world. So now we go from being inside the stomach in the womb to outside, right? And now because of that impermanence and now there's craving for permanence, we right? We cry, right? We come out painful as birth again and again and again and again, right? I don't know because I'm not a doctor, but I don't know if there's any babies who come out laughing uh, potentially, right? There could be, but from what I know about childbirth is the babies come out crying, right? And that is because birth is painful again and again and again. So house builder, you've been seen. What the Buddha is saying here is, I understand why there's rebirth, why there's existence, why there's continuous existence. House builder, you've been seen. And it's craving, desire, attachment. That's what's causing this continuous rebirth. The Buddha sees it. He sees it very clearly. He knows what's happening and why we keep coming back into birth over and over and over again, keep coming into existence. And he says, you will not build a house again because he's eliminated craving, desire, attachment. He knows that he's not coming back into existence again. There's no way because he's eliminated the craving, desire, attachment. All your rafters are broken. The ridge pole is dismantled, immersed in dismantling. That's what he's doing when he made his way to enlightenment. He's eliminating all this craving, anger, and ignorance, and you are too on this path to enlightenment. You're dismantling the rafters. You're taking away the ridge pole. You're dismantling this house builder by getting rid of craving, anger, and ignorance. And the mind has attained to the end of craving. When the mind gets to the end of craving, that's what's dismantled the continuous rebirth because there's no more craving in the mind there can't be continuous rebirth because you've extinguished the fire the fuel is the craving so when you eliminate the fuel which is craving there can't be a spark to make the new fire okay so that's what the buddha is sharing here in this part of his teachings so i'll see what questions you guys have if any at all i'm not seeing any questions here so let's move on to the next one, which is 121. This chapter is titled, This is my instruction to you. Whatever should be done, monks, by a compassionate teacher out of compassion for his disciples, aspiring for their welfare, that I have done for you. These are the feet of trees. Monks, these are empty huts. Meditate, monks. Do not be complacent, lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So here, of course, the Buddha is guiding his students to meditate. He's saying, don't be complacent because that's what the mind tends to want to do in the unenlightened state is when it's time to meditate and you're thinking about meditation, your mind's like, ah, let me do this one more thing. Let me do this. Let me do that. Until you get a real dedicated and consistent practice built up, there can be some complacency there. And the Buddha is saying that if your mind is complacent, 
you're going to regret it later. And what he's sharing here is sharing when you're angry, when you're frustrated, when you're irritated, you're going to regret having not meditated. And potentially what he's referring to here is that if you experience rebirth, the cycle of rebirth and continuous rebirth over and over and over again, that you're going to regret having not meditated if you continue to keep experiencing that. So don't allow complacency to set in or you're going to regret it later. Continue to build up your meditation practice and be consistent and dedicated with it. He's saying whatever should be done, monks, by a compassionate teacher out of compassion for his disciples, aspiring for their welfare, that I have done for you. Because oftentimes when a teacher is teaching the teachings that lead to enlightenment, students have all kinds of assumptions. There's all kinds of perceptions that they're clinging to, perhaps. It takes a student to set aside certain aspects of their mind and just connect with a teacher and understand that this person is being loving and kind and compassionate. They're generously sharing their time, effort, energy, and resources just with an interest to help you. That's the only thing they're doing. A Buddha for sure, right? They're not asking for any money. They don't have any expectations of you. They don't want anything from you. They're just sharing their teachings out of compassion for their students. Compassion is the concern for their misfortune because a Buddha has done all the hard work to get to enlightenment. If you think getting to enlightenment is a challenge with a teacher, if you can imagine somebody doing it all by themselves, he discovered all these teachings all by himself. If you can imagine doing that, it's an extensive amount of work. And having done all that work on his own mind and now choosing to give all those teachings away for free just to help people to experience that same mental state. It takes an enormous amount of loving kindness and compassion for a teacher to be willing and able to actually do that. So he's reminding his students that what he does is just based purely in compassion, concern for their misfortune, so that they don't have any confusion that he wants anything from them, that he has any expectations of them, or anything like that that he's only purely sharing teachings out of compassion for his students. And I would agree with this, that this is also why I share these teachings, just out of compassion to help the students, that I don't want anything or expect anything from you. It's just out of compassion, concern for your misfortune, to help you experience this mental state of enlightenment, where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and at the same time, encouraging you to not be complacent because that's what the unenlightened mind is going to want to do. It's going to want to come up with excuse after excuse, not only why to not meditate, but it's going to come up with excuse after excuse of why to give up on the path. It's going to constantly want to give up and it's going to try to create all kinds of reasons to give up. But you need to be stronger than that. You need to be more diligent and dedicated than that. And don't allow the mind to be complacent because if you do, you'll regret it later. Any questions on this chapter? All right, I'm not seeing any questions. This is a common chapter that I've shared many places. So let's go to the next one, which is 122. Here, this is titled Monk Who is Perfected in Morality, First Discourse. And how, sir, is a monk perfected in morality? Abandoning the taking of life, he resides refraining from taking life without stick or sword, diligent, compassionate, trembling for the welfare of all living beings. Thus, he is accomplished in morality. Abandoning the taking of what is not given, he resides refraining from taking what is not given, living purely, accepting what is given, awaiting what is given without stealing, Thus, he is accomplished in morality. 
abandoning unchastity. He lives far from it, distant from the village, practice of sex. Thus he is accomplished in morality. Abandoning false speech. He resides refraining from false speech, a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Thus he is accomplished in morality. Abandoning malicious speech. He does not repeat there what he has heard here to the damage of these or repeat here what he has heard there to the damage of those. Thus he is a peacemaker of those in conflict and an encourager of those to come together, rejoicing in peace, loving it, finding joy in it, one who speaks up for peace. Thus he is accomplished in morality. Abandoning harsh speech, he refrains from it. He speaks whatever is blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, courteous, pleasing and attractive to the multitude, many people. Thus he has accomplished immorality. Abandoning idle chatter, he speaks at the right time what is correct into the point of teachings in discipline. He is a speaker whose words are to be treasured, meeting the needs of the occasion, well thought out, well defined, and connected with the goal. Thus he is accomplished in morality. All right. So here, this first part of this is the five precepts, these first four that he's describing here. And remember, morality is moral conduct. And the Buddha teaches a certain aspect of moral conduct. And of course, he teaches mental discipline and training the mind. And all of it is based in wisdom. So he's teaching wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. Well, if you were just to learn the mental discipline of training the mind with meditation and things like this, you wouldn't actually be able to get to enlightenment. Because if you meditated 23 and a half hours a day, but you didn't understand the moral conduct and you went out into the world and you were harsh and aggressive and hostile with people, you wouldn't be experiencing peace and joy because all of that's going to be coming back to you. So it's important to understand the moral conduct of the path to enlightenment. And that's what he's teaching here in terms of being perfected in morality. Because if you can perfect your morality, you're going to cut down and significantly reduce the harms that you're causing in the world. So less and less harm is going to be coming back to you. As long as you're putting out harm through your intention, speech, actions, and livelihood, then that's what's going to come back to you. So here he's talking to a certain degree about the five precepts. Although here when he's talking about abandoning unchastity, he's talking specifically to the monks about eliminating sex altogether, essentially, is what he's talking about. And then these last three are further understanding of right speech and helping you to understand malicious speech, harsh speech, and idle chatter is going to produce unwholesome results. And if you'd like to go into details of why any of these are going to produce unwholesome results and they're unwise, you can let me know. So rather than go through all of these and explain all of them individually, which I do as part of the five precepts and the Eightfold Path, I'll just open up to whatever questions you guys have on any of this morality, because it's very important to clean that up in order to reduce any harm that's coming back to you. Let's see. We have a question here on YouTube. How many spiritual enlightenment is there? Time to time, my mind still has cravings. No, any more anger. How many spiritual enlightenment is? 
I think what you're asking there is how many enlightened beings are there in the world? If that's what you're asking, there's no number because there's nobody that keeps track of that sort of thing. And it's not wise to declare to people that you are enlightened. And enlightenment is subjective to an individual. If you can determine if someone is enlightened or not, this is based on your subjective opinion, based on what you know about enlightenment. So if somebody thinks that enlightenment is drinking alcohol and having sex, they might think that a lot of people are enlightened. Whereas if somebody understands that somebody who's drinking alcohol and having sex and having harsh speech and aggression and things like this, they're not enlightened, then that person knows more about enlightenment and will be able to determine if other people are enlightened or not. But remember that the path to enlightenment isn't about determining whether other people are enlightened or not. It's about getting to enlightenment yourself. So if I understand your question properly, that's the way I would answer it. If I didn't understand that part correctly, feel free to rephrase it. And now you're saying from time to time, my mind still has cravings. There's no more anger. So if you have craving, then the mind still isn't enlightened. If you don't have anger, then that's wonderful. But you're still going to need to eliminate your cravings because it's still producing some type of discontentedness. It's still experiencing some amount of discontentedness to a certain degree. So you would need to eliminate every single craving that's in the mind in order to experience enlightenment. All right, so let's go on to the next chapter, which is chapter 123. This is titled, Monk Who is Perfected in Morality, Second Discourse. He eats once a day and not at night, refraining from eating at improper times. He avoids watching dancing, singing, music, and shows. He abstains from using garlands, perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments, and adornments. He avoids using high or wide beds. He avoids accepting gold and silver. He avoids accepting raw grain or raw flesh. He does not accept women and young girls, male or female slaves, sheep or goats, cocks and pigs, elephants, cattle, horses and mares, fields and plots of land. He refrains from running errands, from buying and selling, from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery and corruption deception and insincerity, from wounding, killing, imprisoning, highway robbery, and taking food by force. Thus, he has accomplished a morality. So this is just an add-on to what we were just describing in that previous chapter. And a lot of these things are for monks, and some of them you can actually incorporate into your practice. So if you guys would like to talk about these, we surely can. The one that he's talking about here, eating once a day, I've already talked about that, that that's mainly for the monks and the reasons why that occurred. There's some other reasons too, because if the Buddha had the monks eating two or three times a day, then that would put a big burden on the household practitioners to be able to provide that amount of food. So by having them just eat once a day, the household practitioners can just make one offering to the monks and then the monks can just eat rather than having to work so hard to provide two, three, four, five meals a day. What the Buddha is talking about here about not eating at night, what you'll notice is if you eat regularly prior to going to sleep that your mind's going to get attached to eating at night and you're not going to be able to fall asleep regularly unless you've eaten food your mind's going to get attached to that you're going to find it hard to sleep if you haven't eaten prior to going to sleep so it's wise to finish eating long before sleep to train the mind to let go and no longer continue to eat prior to sleep and getting the mind attached to that Refraining from eating at improper times, the Buddha had 
his ordained practitioners eat prior to midday, which we would call noon. They would have to eat prior to that, and that gives the body time to process the food before it's time to sleep. And then avoid watching dancing, singing, music, and shows. Again, this is for the ordained practitioners because it puts them into a womb that allows them to more closely watch the mind and ensure that it's not getting attached to these kinds of things. As household practitioners, you might go for a period of time of not doing these things, maybe six months, a year, two years, to ensure that the mind's not craving and attached to them because if you're craving or attached to them, you'll experience some boredom or loneliness. So you might go for a period of time without these things, but then ultimately when you know that your mind is liberated from them, there's no harm in bringing them back in. You would be able to essentially dance or sing or listen to music or go to shows, but your mind wouldn't be attached to it at that point. You would enjoy it for what it is in that moment and then you would let it go and move on. He abstains from garlands, perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments, and adornments. This is all related to achieving and realizing the universal truth of non-self, that as long as you continue to do these things, the mind's gonna start associating this body with who you are as a person, and now when you're decorating the body, using perfumes, cosmetics, ornaments, or adornments, you're you know, making it in the mind that this body needs to look a certain way or else you can't go out in the world. So what you would like to do is once again, for six months, a year, two years, train the mind to not need these things. If you use makeup or perfumes or you use jewelry and rings and necklaces, even if it's a wedding ring, go a period of time without it. You'll see that your mind, if it's regularly wearing a wedding ring or a necklace or having makeup or things like this, you'll see that you're not gonna feel comfortable going out into the world like this because your mind's attached to these kinds of things. So you're gonna need to put the mind in the situation that it's uncomfortable with to train it to now be comfortable without your wedding ring, without your necklace, without your makeup and go out into the world and see that, yeah, you can function just fine. You don't need to be attached to these things. So now when you go six months, a year, two years without them, if you choose to start wearing them again, fine, because you won't be attached to them at that point. You've gone an extended period of time without them. So that's why he taught people to abstain from those things. But ultimately, you can bring them back in, but you would like to doubly make sure that your mind is not attached to them by going an extended period of time without them. He's talking about avoiding high or wide beds. What he's talking about here, and he talks in other places, is he talks about sleeping on a low position on the floor, essentially on the floor. The reason why is because with the mind having conceit, which is one of those fetters, where there's arrogance and pride, there's judgment, measuring and comparing people, looking down or looking up to people, then as long as that conceit's in there, the mind's not gonna be able to experience enlightenment. So by sleeping on the floor, it helps to eliminate the conceit. It's not gonna be a one day thing or a one week thing, but over a period of years of just having your mattress on the floor, no need to have it real high, you would like to have your bed either at knee height or lower preferably lower so that you just have a mattress on the floor, for example. And this is going to help the mind to eliminate its conceit by going in and out of the bed each day and each night. You will see that slowly but surely the mind will become more humbled being down closer to the earth. The Buddha taught during his lifetime for the ordained practitioners to not receive gold and silver. This was the currency at the time. And he taught them not to accept that because they could get their food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care 
by just walking through the community in the villages and people would give them all the things they need to sustain their life. So they didn't need gold and silver during that time because the Buddha isn't interested in people getting attached to money. So he taught them to not accept gold and silver. Nowadays, teachers and ordained practitioners do accept money because we wouldn't be able to survive without it to get transportation or put gas in my motorbike or purchase some food or socks or medicine or things like this. There's not going to be a student with me every single moment to be able to purchase those things. So we accept those things nowadays, but you still need to train the mind to not be attached to money. So even as a household practitioner, you're going to have money. So you need to observe the mind that when your bank account goes up and down, or you have a lot of money or a little bit of money, you need to observe the mind and be sure that the mind's not having pleasant feelings and painful feelings as your income and your wealth is going up and down. Train the mind to let go of that. Here, the Buddha talks about accepting a lot of these things, which are essentially living beings. He's talking about animals and slaves and things like this. He's also talking about not cheating uh, from doing certain things or bribery and corruption because during the lifetime of the Buddha, some of the ordained practitioners would still do a little bit of work here and there, right? They're not always disconnecting from work. They would still be doing some of these things. And then the Buddha is talking about deception, insincerity, a wounding, killing, imprisoning, highway robbery, and taking food by force. That it's important that we don't do those things for obvious reasons, right? Okay, let me see if there's any questions on this in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. It looks like Allison has a question here. She's saying, hello, sir. I have a question. Is sex and sexual contact one of the things that can be given up and then reintroduced? Why or why not? Thank you. So, Unfortunately, sex is not something that can be getting rid of and then reintroduced. And the reason why is because I'm sure you've experienced this, that if you have been having sex and then you don't have sex, but your mind wants it, your mind wants sex, then it can't get it. So it's going to be discontent. So in order to get to actual enlightenment, an individual will need to eliminate sexual contact 100%. But when or if you ever choose to do that is your choice. You don't necessarily need to do that right away or in the next year or two or the next five or the next 10 or 20 years. You can decide for yourself. But over time, as you practice the teachings more and more and you start experiencing that peace and the joy, you can do all the work on the path to enlightenment. And you might still be having a sexual relationship with your partner. And you can get to the point where your mind's completely peaceful and completely joyful. But occasionally, you're going to still have discontentedness when it comes to sex because there's going to be times where you want it and you can't get it. And then when you're actually having sex, having those pleasant feelings based on the condition of pleasure to the physical body and all the other senses too, all the senses are involved in sexual contact, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact and the mind itself. That's why it's so impactful and it's so intimate because all six sense bases are involved. So when you're having those pleasant feelings during sex, that's conditional pleasant feelings that your mind is experiencing based on the condition of having sex. So now when you're not having sex, the craving isn't getting fulfilled, so there's going to be painful feelings as a result. So as long as one has central desire in the mind and there's craving for sexual contact, you're going to still experience discontentedness. But you can do all the other work and get to a mind where you're in that second stage of enlightenment 
and you've done all that other work, but you're still having a sexual relationship and you're going to occasionally have discontentedness when you can't get sex. And when you're having sex, that's discontentedness too because of the pleasant feelings. And then when you and your partner, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, however many years from now, you guys decide that you would like to let this go because you're starting to value and appreciate the peace and the joy more than that temporary pleasure of sex, you guys will decide to let go. Even though oftentimes when we're very young, we envision ourselves being on our deathbed, still having sex because it's that pleasurable. There's very few people who are on their deathbed having sex. We're going to let it go at some point. One of the ways you can think about this is it's like a razor blade covered in honey. And when you lick the honey, you taste the honey, but you're cutting your tongue. That's essentially what sex ends up experiencing to be like because you experience the pleasure of sex, but then there's the painful feelings that you have to deal with when you can't get sex. And you'll put up with a certain amount of that as you're making your way to that second stage of enlightenment. And while you're in the second stage of enlightenment, still doing all that other work. But eventually you and your partner will get to a point where you keep realizing you keep licking this honey off of this razor blade. And every time you do, you keep, yes, experiencing those pleasant feelings that's so great with intimate contact, but then behind that, there's going to be some painful feelings that come into the mind. So unfortunately, it can't be reintroduced because by the time that you've let sex go, you've already eliminated any craving for it. And that's how the mind got to that peacefulness is that it no longer has a craving for sex. And now the mind can reside peaceful and joyful permanently because when you're not having sex, you're completely fine with that because you're no longer craving it, no longer desiring it. Wonderful questions, guys. You guys are asking some great questions here. Yes, you're welcome. I'm not sure if that's a sir or ma'am or born in washing machine on uh, YouTube. You're very welcome. Pleased to help you. Yes, you're welcome, Allison. Pleased to help you as well. You know, when or if you ever choose to let go of sexual contact is up to each individual. There's no judgment. There's nobody forcing you or controlling you to do that. It's, it's your own journey to enlightenment. And when or if you ever decide to let it go is completely up to you. All right. I'm not seeing any other questions on this chapter. So let's move on to this last chapter for today, which is the last chapter of this book, volume three, chapter 124. Monk who is perfected in morality, third discourse. Whereas, sir, some aesthetics and Brahmins feed on the food of the dedicated are addicted to the destruction of such seeds as are propagated from roots, from stems, from joints, from cutlings, from seeds. A monk refrains from such destruction. Thus, he is perfected in morality. Whereas some aesthetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated remain addicted to the enjoyment of stored up goods, such as food, drink, clothing, carriages, beds, perfumes, meat. A monk refrains from such enjoyment. Thus, he is perfected in morality. Whereas some aesthetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated remain addicted to attending such shows as dancing, singing, music, displays, recitations, hand music, cymbals and drums, fairy shows, acrobats and conjuring tricks, combats of elephants, buffaloes, bulls, goats, rams, cocks and quail, fighting with staves, boxing, wrestling, sham fights, parades, maneuvers, and military reviews, 
A monk refrains from attending such displays. Thus, he is perfected in morality. Whereas some aesthetics and Brahmins feeding on the food of the dedicated make their living by such base arts, such wrong means of livelihood as palmistry, divining by signs, portents, I think it's like potions, dreams, body marks, mouse gnawings, fire obligations, obligations from a ladle of husk, rice powder, rice grains, ghee or oil, from the mouth or of blood, reading the fingertips, house and garden lore, skills and charms, ghost lore, earth house lore, snake lore, poison lore, rat lore, bird lore, crow lore, foretelling a person's lifespan, charms against arrows, knowledge of animals' cries. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some aesthetics and Brahmin feeding on the food of the dedicated make their living by such base arts as predicting an eclipse of the moon, the sun, a star, the sun and moon will on their proper course will go astray, that a star will go on its proper course will go astray, that there will be a shower of meteors, a blaze in the sky, an earthquake, thunder, a rising, setting, darkening, brightening of the moon, the sun, the stars, and such will be the outcome of these things. A monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood, thus he is perfected in morality. Where some aesthetics and Brahmin feeding on the food of the dedicated make their living by such base arts as predicting good or bad rainfall, a good or bad harvest, security, danger, disease, health, or accounting, computing, calculating, poetic composition, prophesizing, a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood. Thus, he is perfected in morality. Whereas some aesthetics and Brahmins, feeding on the food of the dedicated, make their living by such base arts as arranging the giving and taking in marriage, engagements and divorces, declaring the time for saving and spending, bringing good or bad luck, procuring abortions, using spells to bind the tongue, binding the jaw, making the hands jerk, causing deafness, getting answers with a mirror, a girl medium, a heavenly being, worshipping the sun or great Brahma, breathing fire, invoking the goddess of luck, a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood, thus he is perfected in morality. Whereas some aesthetics and Brahmins, feeding on the food of the dedicated, make their living by such base arts, such wrong means of livelihood, as appeasing the heavenly beings and redeeming vows to them, making earth house spells, causing virality or impotence, preparing and consecrating building sites, giving ritual rinsings and baths, making sacrifices, giving emnics, purges, exportorants in boy i can't pronounce that word <laughs> giving ear eye nose medicine ointments and counter ointments eye surgery surgery podiatry using balms to counter the side effects of previous remedies a monk refrains from such base arts and wrong means of livelihood thus he is perfected in morality all right so there's a lot here 
this has a lot to do with uh, livelihood, but there's some other things in here too. So this first one where the Buddha is talking about avoiding the destruction of seeds. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, there weren't these well-defined roads and sidewalks like we have now. That land was just one land connected to the other. And if you were to travel, you would have to walk over people's land in order to get from one place to the next. That there weren't common governments that had created roads and sidewalks and common passageways. Even nowadays, there's a lot of that stuff still going on that we're still building some of that stuff and constructing it. So as people were walking through fields, the Buddha would advise people not to do that and to be very cautious about where you're walking because destroying the seeds in the plants, this would make it hard for the farmers to harvest food and it would make it hard for the population of people to be able to eat because they damage the crops. So if you can imagine the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that might be studying with the Buddha, if all of these people were walking from village to village, town to town and destroying the crops, this would put a burden on the population of people that they wouldn't be able to eat the food that they need and harvest the food that they need. So that's why he taught not to do that because it's causing harm. So therefore harm is going to come to you. It's the natural law of gamma that if we're causing harm to crops, then we can't eat, right? That's the gamma. This next one, he's talking about storing up food. This is for the ordained practitioners. Of course, as household practitioners, we do store up food sometimes, and we need to be sure we're not attached to it. But for the ordained practitioners, the Buddha created this system of mutual support where there's teachers and ordained practitioners who are sharing teachings with the public, and the public is helping us by making offerings in order for us to sustain our life. And there's this mutual support that the household practitioners need the teachings to improve their life and create a better life for themselves. But the teachers are needing the support from the household practitioners in order to sustain their life, in order to eat. So he didn't teach for ordained practitioners or teachers to store up food because he was interested in them and coming in daily contact with the students so that they could continue to learn. Because when you get to enlightenment, your mind's so peaceful and joyful, you might just be interested to stay in the house and not come out and see anybody and just you know stay in your cave, so to speak, and not go in the outside world. But if your mind's doing that and you're not able to go into the outside world, your mind's not yet enlightened. So an enlightened being will be able to go into the world and function with ease. They wouldn't be just craving to stay in a cave all day. So this is how the Buddha ensured that occurred, that he didn't allow them to store up food. And even today, they're not allowed to do that. So here, the next things that he's talking about is essentially all these different entertainments and teaching his ordained practitioners not to do this. And we talked about this previously. And some of these have to deal with living beings like fighting of elephants, buffaloes, bulls, goats, rams, cocks, quail fighting, and then human fighting as well, that this is all causing harm to those beings. So if his students and his ordained practitioners are, are watching this stuff, it's supporting it. So he taught to not do these things because it's causing harm to those animals, and that's just going to continue to cause harm in the world. And there's, of course, usually gambling and betting as part of that too. And then he also talks about military reviews here, too, because, you know, that's just to create war and kill people. So he didn't teach for people to watch those things either. Uh, let's see here. These particular things that he's talking about, these are all things that are going to promote wrong view. 
that if people are doing palmistry and, you know, kind of uh, trying to guess what's going to happen based on something in the future, like fortune telling, this is not allowing the people's minds to be in the present moment. So he taught his ordained practitioners not to do fortune telling and psychic readings and palm reading and things like this. The next ones here is the same thing. This is about predicting things that are going to happen with the stars and the planets and things like this. This is taking people's mind away from what's really important, which is the present moment, ensuring that we're in the present moment, not betting or gambling or predicting things that are going to happen in the future, but bring the mind into the present moment. Then the Buddha is talking here, same thing, about predicting bad rainfall or good rainfall, a good harvest or bad harvest, same kind of thing, that we should just keep our mind in the present moment rather than being worried about what's going to happen in the future. And then here, he taught his ordained practitioners not to arrange weddings and engagements and divorces, that this is for other people to determine. It's not for teachers to tell you who to marry, who to divorce, who to get engaged with. And then same thing here where he's talking about these certain spells that could be done, certain black arts and things like this. He taught not to do those things. And then here's some more of oh, these. These are more spells. And, and he even puts in surgery in here because you know, as household practitioners, you know, there's going to be doctors who are doing podiatry and doing healing and stuff like this. But as an ordained practitioner who's eating the food of the dedicated, right? These people are in the womb. They're eating food of household practitioners and their goal should be to study and deeply practice in order to get to enlightenment. So then they have teachings to give back to the household practitioners that are going to help them in their life. Because they're sustaining their life based on the food of the dedicated practitioners. They should do the work to advance their own practice so that then they can give back to them the teachings. Whereas if an ordained practitioner is eating free food from the household practitioners and then they're going off and making money doing this career or that career or that career, they're not spending the time to do the things that they're supposed to be doing, which is getting dedicated to their practice so that they can return the gamma back to their students by learning and practicing for themselves, training their own mind, and then having teachings to give back to the actual household practitioners. So this is why he taught not to do these things for the ordained practitioners. But in some situations for household practitioners, we're going to still do these healings where it talks about surgery and podiatry and things like that. But for an ordained practitioner, they shouldn't be doing those things. And the Buddha even talks about tattoos and house blessings and things like this. And the unfortunate thing is because we're so far away from the death of the Buddha, you will see ordained practitioners that are doing these things because they're not necessarily studying the original words of the Buddha. So they are doing house blessings or blessings of the land, or they are doing tattoos and things like this. But as household practitioners, if we do tattoos, it's different because we're not living off of the food of the dedicated. But ordained practitioners, they're living off the food of the dedicated. They should be dedicated also to be learning and practicing so they have teachings to give back. So there's a divergence here in some situations between what ordained practitioners are going to do versus household practitioners 
And that's where you need to oftentimes get clarity from a teacher to be able to understand that because by you just looking at the words of the Buddha in the original source text, you're not necessarily going to be able to easily discern that because he's oftentimes teaching to the ordained practitioners. But as a household practitioner, I can share with you those types of things that you are able to do easily as a household practitioner and you'll be able to start to see these things yourself where is if an ordained practitioner was doing eye surgery that means they're going to have to spend a certain amount of time to learn and practice and refine that and now they're making money from doing eye surgery while they're living for free off of all this food and donations from their students but they're not giving the teachings back they're doing something like eye surgery but as a household practitioner we're making money, we're using those resources to put ourselves through school, or we're taking loans, and now we're using that as our profession. So it's important to see the divergence here between ordained practitioners and household practitioners. So let me know what questions you guys have on this particular chapter. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here from any of you guys on this particular chapter. So thank you all for joining for today's class. We're now going to be moving into Volume 4, Chapters 1 through 10. So this book, Volume 4, is a very short book. It only has about 30 or 40 chapters or so. So we'll be in this one for the next few weeks. And if you read the chapters before class and or after class, this will really help you. Because in addition to the words of the Buddha, which we read in the class, there's the reference that goes back to the original source text. And then there's the words that I'm sharing with you as well to help you better understand. And in these classes, even though I'm teaching to a certain level of detail, I'm not able to teach to the same level of detail that I write in the books. So your combination of attending the classes and reading the books will help you to become fully informed. And then you might have certain questions related to your reading as well. Tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm going to be in volume one, chapter 15, which is titled True Love, Love Without Attachment. This is where you're going to learn why your relationships are so problematic and you're having so many difficulties, perhaps in certain relationships that you're in and how to fix that, how to resolve that. Because oftentimes we're not practicing true love in our relationships and therefore in our relationships we really struggle and have difficulties so you're going to need to learn how to eliminate craving desire attachment in your relationships so you can get to practicing true love and then when you and the people around you are practicing true love you'll be able to experience that more and more and you'll be able to identify it more and more and this will make your relationships more fulfilling because you're practicing true love and the people around you are practicing true love you'll see your personal professional relationships blossom and of course this all takes time and it starts with learning so we'll start that on Sunday tomorrow and if you haven't read that chapter be sure to read that because there's a lot of details in there again that I won't be able to share in the class but I'll share as much as I can and then open up to any questions that you guys might have and then on Wednesday, we'll be doing loving kindness meditation together. This is our time to come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice, and then open up to any and all questions that you guys might have related to meditation. So thank you all for joining. I appreciate the questions that you guys asked. This is great that you guys are 
thinking about the teachings and you're contemplating them, you're reflecting on them and seeking clarity, this is what a person does who makes their way to enlightenment. So thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for your dedication and diligence to learning and progressing on the path to enlightenment because this is helping you, those close to you and all of humanity. We'll see you in the next class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.